Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, would you please open them to the book of Daniel chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 24 last time in a Bible study that I've entitled, You Are Powerful in God's Hands. You are powerful in God's hands. It's here in chapter 2 of Daniel in the middle where we find Nebuchadnezzar alone in the dark. He's wondering about the future and thinking about his own life and immortality. He's a little confused because he's been having these recurring dreams that have greatly troubled him. And through these dreams, they have unsettled him in his authority and leadership, but they've also reminded him that the magicians and the sorcerers and all of those around him really don't have access to truth, that they're not living in truth, and that they're unable. And so what does he do? He wants to know what these dreams mean, so he calls all the magicians, astrologers, and everyone, and he says, I want you not only to tell me what the dreams mean, but I want you to tell me the dream. I'm not going to tell you the dream, because in order to establish your authority, you need to tell me the dream. And after you tell me the dream, then give me the interpretation. And what we learn in that is that Nebuchadnezzar understood that they could make anything up from the dream. He could tell them what the dream was and they could make anything up and there would be no real authority based on what they said. But for them to have to tell him what the dream was without any hints or anything and the interpretation really put their reputation on the line and tells us that I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar really believed they knew what they're talking about, but rather used them to control people. Just like today, quite frankly, and unfortunately, where religion is used to hurt people. And religion, you know, the word simply means to bind up. And I know that it's used in the book of James. It's not used in a negative sense. It's actually used in a sense of of relationship in terms of a systematic worship of God. But when we use the word religion today, you know, when you hear the, the word religion compared to relationship, religion is really not used in a positive sense. It's more of a system of belief that you have to follow in order to feel right with God. That's not what God teaches. He doesn't want you to be religious. He doesn't want you to be repetitious. He doesn't want you doing things just because you were told to do things or because you think you have to do things or because you're feeling very guilty because of behavior in your life or you were raised in a religion that made you feel guilt. That's not God's heart for you. The greatest motivation in serving God is your love relationship. It's your response to God. He is always the initiator. Everything in your life started with God. It did not start with a pastor or a radio program or a church. It didn't start with your parents or your grandparents. Everything in your life that relates to God started with God. He's the initiator. We are the responders. We respond to His love. Remember the Bible teaches us that we love God. Why? Because He first loved us. Our response of love is because he first loved us. And we're the responders. 
Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. He's the ruler of the known world. And he stood there with great authority. He believed that he ruled the world, that he was the last word. Nebuchadnezzar thought that history was his, that he could control his own destiny, be the captain of his own ship. And I think if we were to observe Nebuchadnezzar, we would probably agree with him to some degree. We would see a successful man, a powerful man, a rich man. He was powerful in the realm of the government. And at his word, somebody could be put to death. At his word, someone could be banished. At his word, someone could be blessed. I mean, we look at today, the equivalent of that would may not be so much a world ruler, but today we might view celebrities that way. You may believe that celebrities have it made. And, and at their word, things can be done. I mean, you know, you, you think of some of these celebrities on Instagram and influencers that they can be paid a quarter of a million dollars to just post one thing on their Instagram account so that it affects the 20 million followers that you have. And, and you look at that and you might think, well, man, I wish I had that kind of influence. I wish somebody would pay me. I'll take 200 bucks. I'll take two bucks to post something on my Instagram. Like, I'll take any. Give me something. I'd like. And you look at them and you think, well, they have everything. History is theirs. They never have any problems. They can write their own ticket, go anywhere, buy anything, do anything. It's not true. History is not ours to write. I mean, when you think about it, history is actually his story. The the reality of history is really the redemptive work of God on the earth. Everything else doesn't matter. Everything else pales in comparison to the story of God as he's writing in advance, prophetically giving us all that would happen. History is his story. And the powers that will soon, the powers that be, listen today, the powers that be will soon be the powers that were because people come and go and leaders come and go. Even in our own government, we recognize there's a political cycle, isn't there? And leaders come and go. And parties rule and then they don't rule. And that's why it's so important for us today to take advantage of now, of today. To live our lives in the now. Moment by moment abiding in Jesus Christ. How careful we need to be not to get too hung up what's happened in the past. Because the past is behind us. Neither are we to be too worried or maybe some of you not worried at all about what will happen in the future. I'm reminded of Jesus when he says, don't worry about tomorrow. But that's one of our greatest hang-ups. We worry about tomorrow and we get hung up in the past. But rather, God is always calling us to live in the now because now is all we have today. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because that honors Jesus Christ. I don't remember the exact statistic. I didn't look it up for our time today but it's somewhere in the 90s. Let's just say 95% of the things that a person worries about never happens. Never happens. But while we're stuck on the realm of worry, we're worried about things that are never going to happen, but we're losing the moment. We're losing the moment mentally. We're losing the moment spiritually. And Jesus says, Don't worry about tomorrow. Today is sufficient. There's enough in the moment. 
In 2 Corinthians, jot it down in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Mark that. The right time is always now because today is the day of salvation. So let's pick up as we close out this chapter in verse 24. With all this in mind, this is Nebuchadnezzar, who you would think has it all under control. Verse 24. Daniel goes in to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. So let's just ask a question here. At this point in verse 24, does Daniel know the meaning of the dream? Yes or no? The answer is no. For you Bible students, again, when you're writing, when we're studying through the Bible verse by verse, through a book of the Bible, one of the advantages, if you haven't sat under Bible teaching that goes through the entire Bible verse by verse, you need to take advantage of this, and that is you need to read ahead. Read ahead of the verses that will be up ahead. So we left off last time in verse 23. And this is good for you guys on the radio as well. As you're following along with abounding grace and you're listening on the radio, you can read ahead to anticipate what's happening. Because oftentimes what happens when you're reading ahead, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. The Holy Spirit's teaching you. The Holy Spirit's preparing you for the upcoming Bible study. And it giving you a context so that when you do hear the Bible study, you'll have things that God will connect and even confirm in your life. So if you read ahead, you'll read realize that Daniel will be standing before the king and even there standing before the king he doesn't yet know but rather tells them that he knows a God who knows which is so encouraging how many times are we faced with questions and issues in our life that we don't know but we know a God that knows and that's encouraging to us so he doesn't know yet keep that in mind verse 25 Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. Then the king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? And Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret and mark this phrase, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. There is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. And then he begins to reveal it to him. So Daniel, fresh from his prayer meeting, Daniel talks to Arioch, who's known as the executioner. He's been sent out to kill Daniel and his friends because they're now a part of the wise men. They're young men that were kidnapped taken into captivity. We use that phrase, taken into captivity, but they were literally kidnapped, taken in. And remember in our previous studies, they're going to be brainwashed and all that's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, in the Babylonian kingdom, and then they're going to be one of the wise men like everyone else. And because they're one of the wise men, they're going to be executed. And as they, Daniel, when he hears that, he calls for a prayer meeting. God affirms that he's going to reveal to him. They start praying. They start praising God. And fresh from this prayer meeting, he comes inspired and hopeful. And I want you to notice he pleads for the lives of his friends. He pleads for the lives of the wise men, of the astrologers, of the magicians, of the pagan unbelievers. 
And to me, that's the grace of God in a person's life. That's a manifestation of God's grace. Most might have thought about saving their own life and not worrying about those guys. Most would have thought about saving their own skin and watching out for themselves as we live in a culture that we've been, had this pounded into our head. The most important people, me, myself, and I. And so when we're faced with crisis, rather than seeking the Lord, people faced with crisis, even believers will often think of themselves and only themselves. What is this going to mean for me? What is it going to mean for my family? How will I be financially secure? And all of those things. I'm only thinking about me. But that's not Daniel here. He's faced with a death sentence, an immediate death sentence. And instead of just throwing his arms up and trying to sell other people out, and, and he's thinking of other people and putting his own life on the line for the sake of others, which becomes a picture and a type of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Who laid his own life on the line for the sake of you and me through the mercy and the grace of God. And not only his friends, but all of the pagan unbelievers. It wasn't just his friends. I mean, I think there's probably a sense where we could see, well, he's going to watch out for his buddies, his teenage buddies. But it's not just his teenage buddies. He's looking out for those that he's been going to school with and being taught by and being brainwashed by. He wants to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's heart is God's heart, which I believe should be our heart. God loves the lost, and so should we. I am becoming more and more frustrated as a pastor to hear what's happening in the church, perhaps even in our own church, although I haven't been on Facebook in a while, so I don't know what people are posting these days. But I do know the bigger picture where whole classes of people are being put down because of their gender, because of their confusion in, realm, in, in realms of what gender they think they are, or I see the church putting down politics and putting down politicians and putting down whole segments of people because of their, their political views and becoming so hypercritical and becoming so hyperjudgmental, becoming, quite frankly, so loveless in a broken, dark world. I don't know who I'm speaking to. I don't know who this is relatable to. But I must ask you the question, where do you think that's getting you with the gospel? What doors do you think God is opening for you when you just stand up and say, oh, you know, send those immigrants back. Really? Seriously? Why don't you find them and share the gospel with them? Oh, you know, they don't belong here. What do you care whether they belong? They're standing in front of you. They're people. And you go, oh, Ed, that wasn't very nice. Well, too bad. What's your problem? Why do you care? Well, you know, because of this country. Do you know God preceded this country? Did, did you know that? Did you know that God preceded this country? Anybody say yes or no to that? I'm not saying that we're not to stand and respect our country, to appreciate the military. I, I do. I think there's a healthy respect to love people and appreciate I'm not in any way demeaning or putting down what the blood that was shed for our country or the freedoms that we have. But if you get caught up in things that aren't related to getting the gospel into people, you're wrong. Biblically, that's not my opinion. You're wrong. I might even go as far to say as you're sinfully wrong. Jesus Christ saved your soul so that you might be a vessel to express love and mercy to someone else in Jesus' name. That's why you're saved. You're saved to make a difference for the gospel. You're not saved to espouse some opinion. 
I'm not asking you to change your opinions. You can take your opinions before the Lord and let him talk to you about them. But God wants us to love all people, all races, all colors, all creeds, all statuses, all, you know, I, I think of the, 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 the constant continual confusion. I was, I'll tell you, even in my own heart, in my own heart, recent, just on this trip, I went, we went to a, one of these hipster coffee houses uh, to test it out in Orange County, and, and I had to use the restroom, so I walked around the corner, and I saw the restroom there, and there was the sign there that said, any gender, any gender, and I was going to post it and make some comment about it on my Instagram, and I decided not to because I didn't know how that would gain in any way whatsoever the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just didn't do it. Now, I, I don't like it. I don't like my daughter being in a restroom where a guy can, I, I can say that. I don't like it. I would teach my daughter how to be careful there. And, but that's the world in which we live. And so someone that's using that restroom is maybe confused about their gender. Maybe they don't have Christian parents or they don't have influence to help them understand that God made them male or female or that they can be comfortable in their own skin or they don't have to believe the lies or we can help them in their confusion going to look for a restroom like that. And we need to learn how to navigate in a culture that's ever-changing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when a death sentence put on our lives, that we don't look to save ourselves, but we lay our lives down for a friend because there's no greater love. There's no greater love to be expressed. And so I found myself even, I, I literally was going to take a picture of that restroom to make some kind of comment, that sign, not the restroom, it wasn't anything special about the restroom, but the sign on the door. I know that's our culture. I, I know that's our culture. And instead it should trigger in my mind, there's a lot of confused people that that sign will make sense to. There's a lot of people wrestling with things. And I know there's a group of people that are very active and, and, and very vigilant. I get that, but they need to be saved too. And I'm not saying to lay down and just let the culture go to hell. I'm saying to stand up and preach the gospel to a culture that's headed to hell. That's what I'm saying. To live out the gospel. We were also on this last trip. We went to the Harvest Crusade. Uh, I was talking about it on Sunday, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to be there in time to get there. So we went down. We got right off the plane, got our rental car, and went right to Anaheim Stadium. And we were there for the 30th year of the Harvest Crusade. And I was, as we were there, we're walking in, and there's always those guys that come with their signs to try to stumble people that are going in and out of the crusade. And, you know, Greg Laurie's a Vols teacher, and, and, and these were actually tame signs. There was only a couple people this time. Uh, there were, the guy, I heard the guy talking. He, he said, yeah, there were supposed to be three of us, but one didn't show up. Praise God for that. Maybe that was an answer to prayer, right? He didn't make it. Uh, he got a flat tire. And he's right. I don't know what happened. But <clears throat> they were there to stumble people because they had this message. And it was really in your face. And, and you know what? They didn't make any difference. They weren't representing Jesus Christ at that crusade. They weren't representing in any way the love of Jesus Christ. And I, we stopped by to listen to them, and they weren't. And whether we carry a sign like that, and you go, Ed, I'd never do that, but maybe your life is carrying a sign that doesn't in any way represent Jesus Christ. 
where you do, you might be listening to me because I, I might have offended you and I didn't mean to offend you, so please forgive me if I did. I only want you to consider this in light of the gospel because you're there and you go, well, Ed, I served in the military and, you know, or my, I lost a, a friend in the military or my family in the military fighting for this freedom and I really believe in this freedom. Well, I want to honor that in your life and say, yes, hold on to that and thank you for your service and thank you for those that are serving right now, many of you at Buckley, thank you. But I'm also asking you, yeah, go ahead, thank them in Jesus' name. I agree. I agree. But this, this, so, so if I had to summarize what I'm saying, this is what I'm asking you to do. Take that sense of honor and take that sense of, of commitment and take that sense of, of honest appreciation and lay it before the Lord and ask him how he can use you and your opinions for the gospel. And he'll show you. You won't lose anything by submitting yourself to Jesus Christ. You won't lose anything. You go, well, maybe I'll lose my identity or maybe uh, I'll lose that sense. Maybe I serve for nothing. You didn't serve for nothing because the freedoms that we express in this country allow us to get the gospel out with relatively complete freedom. And, the, and God will honor that in the, on the Bema seat of rewards, certainly in your life. But it doesn't further the gospel by putting people down and judging them and becoming hyper-judgmental and pointing fingers and making comments. It doesn't help the gospel. It's wasted. It's wood, hay, and stubble. Daniel is standing on behalf of God. There is a God. And in order to say there is a God in heaven, our lives need to reflect the character and nature of that God in heaven. Otherwise, we'll never get an audience. There's a danger in the church today. There's a danger in the church today, and we're seeing it rise up in this generation more than ever before, where so much of the church seems to be defined by what we're against instead of what we're for. That we're known who we're against. We're known what we're against. Oh, we don't approve of that. Oh, we don't like that. Oh, no, not here, not Christians. We don't like that. Those guys and that group. And yet, we're not known for who we're for. Nobody really ever gets a good representation of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've forgotten where you have come from. <laughs> you were one of them. I was one of them. And God saved me, pulled me out of the miry clay. And I'm grateful that the best way that, and we've learned this. This is Pastor Chuck taught us this. My pastor taught me this. The greatest way to dispel the darkness is not to curse the darkness, but rather to turn on the light. In the darkest of places, the littlest of light illuminates the room. And so while we do believe, and I, I understand that by Jesus Christ died because of sin, your sin and mine, and in our culture today, it's just rampantly filled with sin. And I'm not asking to accommodate sin. I'm not asking you to approve of sin in any way whatsoever. I'm just asking you to consider how you're delivering the message in your life and from your mouth, especially with social media. It's one thing to look at the world and say, what a shame the world is that way. It's a whole other thing to do something about it. Now that you've made a good diagnosis that the world is in trouble, that would be an accurate diagnosis now, the real question is, what are you going to do about it? What is God, how is God going to use you? How is it that God's going to use that strong opinion of yours? There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. 
He's going to do it, Daniel says. And Daniel wants to save everyone's life, not just his. I like that attitude. May we be Daniel. We want to save everyone's life, not just ours. You know, we didn't get saved. Oh, I'm saved. I don't have to go to hell. Well, praise God you're saved. and not Now, now let's stand at the gates of hell and make sure no one else gets in. Let's preach the gospel in such a way in our lives and our mouths where God can use us and our message isn't just ignored because our life is so contrary to the love of God. Because love is what penetrates all the confusion. Because confusion doesn't allow a person to experience the love of God. You know, when a person's worried about what gender am I and who do I like and who do I care and can't anybody... You know, when someone says, I can love anyone and be married to anyone it's really a confusing statement because they know it not to be true just like the magicians they know they were frauds they knew they were frauds if they knew if they believed that they were as smart as they were they would have at least tried to tell him the dream but they didn't why because they knew that gave them a 50 50 or less than a 50 50 chance to be exposed so it's not like people don't realize that they're distant from god but the bible says in romans chapter 1 that they willingly suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They, they willingly press away the truth of God's love through their bad behavior. And what we need to do is we need to get around their bad behavior to the essence of who the person is. And a person, listen, this is how God saw you. And this is how I'm sure a friend, a grandmother, a mom, somebody saw you this way. You are not your sin. You want me to say that again? You are not your sin. For a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For those of you that aren't in Christ today, then you are a person that's separated from God by your sin. That if you would turn away from your sin today and acknowledge that God sent his only begotten son to die for you, to forgive you of your sins, if you would admit that today, turn away from your sins and submit yourself to God, he'll save you too. And he'll cleanse you and wash you and you'll become a new creation. But we're not to identify ourselves by our sin. But that's often what believers do. They automatically just go right after the sin and forget you're talking to a person, a hurting person, a person that's confused, a person that's lost. Now Daniel he says, no one else has been able to help you, but there's a God in heaven that can. No one else can help you. And, and he doesn't take the credit for himself. I've seen so many people at this point, Daniel being so confident in what God's revealed to him, he could have taken all the credit. He could have said, I know, and never given credit to God. He could have given the dream to him and said, that all came from me. You know, I'm just like, I'm a super boy. You know, you picked me out on, for a good reason because I'm the guy. But he doesn't do that. He gives the revelation. So notice now uh, in verse 29, he says, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. So out of the, right out of the gate, his first statement is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar he knows what he's talking about. The very first thing he says, you were dreaming about future events. He who reveals secrets shown you what's going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. God wants you to understand what's in your heart. God wants you to understand what you're troubled about. He wants you to understand. How much more, if he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to understand, how much more the believer in Jesus Christ. 
So notice, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of the iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain and covered the whole earth. Remember, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they, they couldn't do this. But Daniel gave it to him confidently, looking up at him and telling him exactly what happened. I like what David Jeremiah writes commenting on this, and I quote, What Daniel was about to reveal to the most powerful ruler on earth was that his days were numbered. If Daniel were alive today, he could very well stand before the ambassadors of all 193 member states of the United Nations and say, tell the leaders of your nations that their days are numbered. God has shown me a dream about the future of the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom will be established on the earth and will never end. And Daniel was going to give it to him now blow by blow. Nebuchadnezzar saw the image. It was great, splendor, excellent. And the enormity of the image represented humanity's inflated sense of its own accomplishments. People see their achievements as something great and splendid and brilliant, a colossal construction, all, all the achievements of man. But the image was meant to convey that this world's power is outward greatness from the human perspective. Outward greatness. So it has the head of gold, you notice, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet were mixed with iron and clay. And as he watched it in his dream, it was crushed by this stone. And it was then blown away like it never existed. And the stone became a mountain. I wonder if you can guess by now who the stone represents in the kingdoms of men. But we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 36 now. It says, that was the dream. Now let me tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty power, strength, and honor. He's made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. And after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there'll be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet, the toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will also try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together just as iron and clay cannot and do not mix. So how fitting is it not that God would use this image for a polytheistic king? He would communicate to him in something he would understand, an image. Because their, their empire was filled with images that they would bow down to. And so how does God communicate to him? With something that's relatable. And that's important for us to understand that we take the Bible and we make it relatable to the person that we're speaking to. That, that we make it relatable. We don't change the message in any way whatsoever. 
but we understand that we're talking to someone individually, praying for God to give us insight on how to make it relatable to them. How to make it relatable that we might communicate the gospel so they would understand it. You know, the simplest way that I would use to describe that 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 happens in the church is, is that if I was teaching this Bible study, this exact Bible study, using these exact notes to second graders, I would do it differently. I would say the same things in many ways. I would read the same Bible, but I would use different illustrations for them. I would probably, instead of standing in front of them like I am here, I'd probably get them on the floor and sit on the floor with them. I would probably play some kind of game with them that they might be able to trust me for the next, I wouldn't do 45 minutes with them either. I'd probably do 20 minutes or 15 minutes. I I might get them to ooh and ah. I might get them to to tell me what gold looks like and anything in the room looks like. I would relate to them so that they would get it. That's the whole point. The whole point of Bible study is that people will get it. Whenever you open the Bible, it's so somebody can get it. When you share it with someone, you want them to get it. And so you need to pray. You need to pray that God will use you to relate to the person that's in front of you. You'd use different illustrations for a married person than you would a single person. We just have a mission team come back for the Philippines. There are cultural things to consider when you go to the Philippines and you're teaching the gospel. They live in a different culture than we do. So we need to make sure that the true unchanging message of the gospel can be related to a different culture so that we don't offend them or hurt them and we got a team going out to brazil here in a few weeks same thing we want to be relatable to the culture we want to be relatable and god is showing us that example to nebuchadnezzar he gives him this image of a man and each section of the man was a kingdom and one of the things nebuchadnezzar needed to understand is that his kingdom wouldn't last forever And let me just tell you, whatever role you have, whatever position you have, whatever leadership you have, it's not going to last forever. You will vacate it one day. I would even put it, go so far to say in my own life, I will not pastor this church forever. There will be, if the Lord doesn't come back first, there will be another pastor of this church. Just by the sake of age, I will not be. And the sake that I have not been destined to live forever. There will be another pastor. And you could say in, in any pastor listening, any, any pastor listening, this is an interim position. It is not a permanent position. God is going to move us on, if not into some other ministry, but then by death, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And you're not going to be playing videos of me after I die. I hope. Don't do it. God's going to have another man and another family and they're going to pastor this church into another direction. And so it's important for leaders and pastors to always have a Timothy, to always be raising up the next generation, to always be conveying that, but always extending the ministry to someone, having a lot of people that you pour yourself into so that not only do you have people you can share the ministry with, but that there's a new segment and a new generations of leaders and the worst thing you can do is to stifle and strangle the little position that you've been given because like Nebuchadnezzar it's going to come to an end Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that because you think not only is remember Daniel a man of prophecy and this is like the end time prophecy is given to us in Daniel but you can't miss remember Daniel is a book about God and God loves Nebuchadnezzar and he wants to reach him he doesn't just want to tell him about the future he wants to reach him and one of the first things Nebuchadnezzar needed to know is that he's not going to live forever 
that his kingdom's coming to an end. Because I'm sure with this kind of absolute authority, you begin to think, I'm going to rule like this forever. And you don't think about your mortality. You don't think about your life and your breath is in the hand of God and that he could call us home at any time. And we don't stifle out the life of someone. When you don't give ministry, when you don't entrust leadership, you, you literally choke the life out of God's ministry. And he won't have that. He will over, if that's you and you're just stifling ministry, you're just strangling ministry, you won't give it away. God will just go around you to someone that will cooperate with him and do a new work through a new person. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that to happen. I want to be used by God until I finish my race, until I finish through the finish line. And Nebuchadnezzar, he needed to know this. Now, the head of gold, of course, represented Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom. And then he says in verse 39 that there's a kingdom coming after you. And it's an inferior one. Uh, these two arms of silver. And we know that this is next kingdom, if you're a note taker and a historian, these are the Medo-Persians. It was a combination of the Medes and the Persians. And we're going to read of Darius the Mede ruling, over, uh, ruling under Persian control. And it's interesting that Daniel says this new kingdom is inferior because no longer is the king alone a supreme leader. He was subject to nobles. Then there's a third kingdom, it says in verse 39, uh, represented by the bronze, uh, the belly and thighs of bronze. You know, Alexander the Great, at age 33, he conquered the whole world. A detail that is included here at the end. Uh, he will rise to, he will rise, or this kingdom will rise to rule the world. This is a little detail that God gave Daniel. And this Alexander the Great, we're told at the base of the Euphrates River that young Alexander wept so convulsively because he came to a place where he said there's nothing else to rule, nothing else to, to conquer. And after his death, this Greek kingdom was then divided among four generals and, and uh, only two of them really rose to the top were the two thighs. They became strong and prominent. And all the while, there was another kingdom in the rising, notice. And it says... Uh, in verse 40, there's a fourth one, as strong as iron, smashing and crushing all previous empires. Anybody want to guess what kingdom that was? It's the Romans. The Romans are, are mentioned here as iron crushing. The Roman Empire came next. And you can't get a better description of Rome than iron, a steady steamroller as they took over the world, which lead us to the feet of iron and clay. Seems the feet and toes describe another time period altogether. You see, Rome wasn't conquered. It just simply fell apart. Very much like we're seeing in our own country, it fell apart from within morally. It imploded. It wasn't conquered. They took the freedoms that were extended to them and they became morally and, uh, corrupt before God. And they, the, Roman, the Roman Empire was, uh, came and was imploded. The ten toes represent ten nations, this confederation, and now we see a, a period of time that has, has taken place between kingdoms for this new revived Roman Empire. It's amazing that for many years nobody believed this could happen, this revived Roman Empire. But today you know the European Union exists. It's, not, it's more than 10 countries for now, but it's exactly as the Bible said. Some are strong, some are weak. Greece is a part of that. And you know, those of you that follow history and follow the news, you know that Greece's economy is in, at the lowest ebb right now, and it's a drain on the European, uh, on this European currency. It's a drain on this confederation. 
and some nations will come and go, which just today in the news, you saw this parliamentary uh, action taken by the new, prime, uh, the new guy. I don't know if they call him a prime minister or not, but this guy Boris in England. Did you guys read this? He asked the queen to, to stop parliament from meeting so that they could exit what they're calling Brexit in, in uh, England so they can exit the European Union because they don't want to be bound by all these other nations. They want to go at it alone. And so even in our, just today, you can look it up, just today, the Queen granted that so that even without an agreement, because they wanted to leave the European Union with an agreement, but now they're seeing with all the political upheaval there, that it's probably not going to happen with an agreement. So he's arranging it politically, using the Queen and a dictator of the Queen of their own government to suspend meeting so that they can leave, even if they don't have an agreement, they can leave and nobody can vote against it. It's amazing what's happening. So when you look at this, you go, oh, how could that ever happen? It's happening before our eyes. Europe is rising. The euro, I I, I should have looked today, but the euro is still stronger than the dollar. It's a strong currency, even with the drag that's going on. And the stronger nations like Germany, the industrial nations like Germany, are carrying the weight. And so the European Union does not want Britain to leave because they're also a strong economy. And it's going to cause chaos and confusion there, which is always when new rulers and leaders rise to the occasion in the time of Christ. It's all before us. Just a careful watching and reading of the news, it's all before us. But Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar this stuff was going to happen thousands of years ago. <laughs> just, you, gotta, you just got to absorb that and go, man, yeah, there is a God in heaven that knows the future. <laughs> there is a God in heaven that knows the future. Even though we don't know how every single detail is all going to work out, it's going to work out because there was Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Medo-Persians did come. And then the Greeks did come. And then the Roman Empire did come. And then there was a long gap. And then there was a revived Roman Empire in Europe after Israel was reborn in 1948. It's amazing the world in which we live. And we could do, so I would just say as we study prophecy, we have to be careful that we don't lose the God of prophecy when we get so tripped out by prophecy. You're like, man, this is amazing. God is on the move. You see, in verse 46 now, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, well, verse 44, that's where we left off. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands that's crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. It doesn't matter what kingdom at land, what kind of rulership, they're all going to be crushed. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and his meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. And the king appointed Daniel to a high position, gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over his wise men. At Daniel's request, now Daniel now Daniel's telling King Nebuchadnezzar what to do. He had a death sentence. And see how fast God switches it around? Now Nebuchadnezzar is listening to him 
to appoint his friends in good positions. He was going to kill them. Do you remember that? The beginning of the chapter? And now he asks, hey, would you put, I don't think he's being uh, rude or anything. He's requesting. He's got an audience. And at Daniel's request, king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel remained in the king's court. So here's the rock. It strikes the image. That rock representing the kingdom, uh, representing Jesus Christ and his everlasting kingdom that's still yet in the future. This, this rock is referred to in other places as Jesus. Psalm 118, if you're writing it down, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, what the sovereign Lord says, look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It's precious, safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken And you have this young teenage boy giving the interpretation in 6th century B.C. before any, any of it is even close to taking place. Before any of it is even on the horizon. And Nebuchadnezzar is affected. As many times, most times, we're affected when we hear the truth. Here he falls on his face. He's used to worshiping anyone and anything, so he worships Daniel. But he'll soon find and be introduced to the true king. As he's on his face before Daniel asking incense to be offered to this little slave boy, this little kidnapped kid. God is ministering to Nebuchadnezzar in the deepest parts of his heart. God, I believe, is desiring to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, to get his attention. And he recognizes God in his forever kingdom. It's too bad it's not a full confession. And we'll know that by the rest of the book. It's not a full confession. There's still more work to be done in Nebuchadnezzar, which as we leave here today, kind of bringing a full circle to us. Instead of putting people down and making fun of them, you know, everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. And most of the time, they don't share that story. All you see is the end result. People were hurt when they were kids and it affected them the rest of their life. People were lied to at a certain stage. They made a bad decision at a stage in their life. Everybody has a story, but you only see what's in front of you. But if you can keep in mind that God wants to reach people no matter what their story is, it will help you not to just write them off because they're different from you. I posted not too long ago a study by Pastor Miles McPherson as he taught at one of the conferences I came from this year. And he taught, I'm going to make it a pick of the month. I'm almost done reading it, and I'm going to make his book a pick of the month. But he did a masterful job. I'll repost it tonight or, or tomorrow on social media. So if you find it, you'll see it on my Facebook, on my Twitter, and on the church's Facebook. I'll post it. Uh, and he did a masterful job of describing to us the, the admonition of Jesus Christ of loving your neighbor. And how important it is to love your neighbor. And the whole point of that teaching of Jesus is that everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. So therefore, everyone is to be loved. But what we do is we like to label people as something, whether it might might be their behavior, it might be their actions, it might be the color of their skin, it might be what country they came from, what language they spoke, whatever. There are multitudes of labels that are used by us as humans to label someone so that they're no longer our neighbor. 
Instead of seeing as our neighbor, they are, and then you fill in the blanks. They're this and this, and they're that, and they're the, and these people, and they need to go. And, and so we get in caught up and know they're not our neighbor anymore. So then in our minds, whether consciously or subconsciously, we in our minds immediately excuse ourselves from the clear instruction of Jesus to love our neighbor and that everyone's our neighbor. And that's not the will of God for us to go around labeling people. It's the will of God for us to go around loving people. That's the will of God. Because everyone's your neighbor. Everyone is my neighbor. Everyone is my neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. And God, what he wants to see is more love. Yeah, even Nebuchadnezzar, even a president you don't agree with, even a principal you don't like, even a teacher that you don't agree with, a policeman that pulled you over, a person from another country, legal, illegal, paper, no paper, every label you can think of, they're your neighbor. And God is wanting us. Because you look at someone like Nebuchadnezzar and you think, man, the best thing for him is just to get him out. But that's not true. The best thing for Nebuchadnezzar was not to get him out, although it may be well for him to be not in a place of leadership. The best thing for Nebuchadnezzar was for him to come in relationship with God and be transformed by the power of God. That's the narrative throughout the scriptures. God's heart to transform rebels because you and I were rebels (laughs) before we were born again. Some of you are still a little stubborn and rebellious, but God still loves you. And even as you identify something in someone, it doesn't excuse you from loving them unconditionally. So Father, thank you for Daniel and thank you for putting us in in this generation, in this time period, that we might be used for your glory and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.